The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A good example of this is the colonial pipeline attack that happened in May of 2021. It provides, colonial pipeline provides 45% of the East Coast's fuel, and it had to shut down its operations for several days when a ransomware group known as Darkside was able to launch a ransomware attack against colonial pipeline. So what we see is that critical infrastructure is vulnerable to ransomware. And I think it's fair to say that the Biden administration elevated ransomware to a national security issue even before it released the national cybersecurity strategy. The strategy talks about bringing all instruments of national power to bear against ransomware and other threat actors. And again, even before the release of the strategy, the Biden administration was engaging in some cutting-edge ransomware disruption efforts. I'm Serafine Danani, legal fellow at Lawfare, And this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 7, 2023. On March 2nd, the Biden administration released its long-awaited national cybersecurity strategy. The new strategy comes more than two years after President Biden took office and sets out a bold vision to achieve a more cybersecure future by the end of the decade. I sat down with our in-house cyber experts, Lawfare's senior editor Stephanie Pell, and fellow in tech policy and law, Eugenia Lostri, to discuss the strategy and their latest piece published on Lawfare titled, The Biden-Harris Administration Releases New National Cybersecurity Strategy. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 7th, Biden's Cybersecurity Strategy. So the cybersecurity strategy comes more than two years after Biden took office, and more than four years after the Trump administration issued the last national cybersecurity strategy in 2018. And also in your piece, you note that there are fundamental, what you call shifts that this strategy seeks to set in motion to achieve pretty hefty cybersecurity goals by the end of the decade. So Stephanie, let's start with you here. What are those shifts and why are they necessary to accomplish the five pillars of this strategy? So Seraphine, I think you're right to start out with the shifts. They very much frame um, how this strategy unfolds. And, And I would say that the new cybersecurity strategy offers an ambitious vision for cybersecurity. And these fundamental shifts affect the way 
that the government seeks to approach cybersecurity for the foreseeable future. To make these shifts, the strategy focuses on how it how to allocate roles, responsibilities, and resources in cyberspace. And the first shift involves rebalancing responsibility to the owners and operators who are most capable and best positioned to make our digital ecosystem secure and resilient. And the second shift involves realigning incentives for long-term investments to build a future digital ecosystem that is more inherently defensible and resilient. And to really understand the full scope of this new cybersecurity strategy, it's useful to understand the prior efforts that came before it. Um, In many ways, it incorporates a lot of ongoing efforts and prior initiatives. And we see the seeds of some of these shifts in the 2021 executive order from the Biden administration that focused on improving the nation's cybersecurity. And let me give you two examples from this executive order that relate to the second shift, which is to realign incentives for long-term investment in cybersecurity. The 2021 executive order uses government tools to drive market incentives towards long-term investment in cybersecurity. And it does this in a number of ways. Two examples are, one, it requires that the United States government only buy secure critical software. Now, the U.S. government spends a whole lot of money on technology every year. So what it's basically doing is it's using its power of the purse to incentivize the strategic objective of getting companies to build secure software. And this has been happening through um, an ongoing process. The National Institute for Standards and Technology, or NIST, has set a standard. The Office of Management and Budget, or OMB, issued guidance to contractors about the NIST standard. And now OMB has started the process of issuing guidance on how federal contractors can attest that they've met the standard. And business and consumers can benefit from this process. Ann Neuberger, the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology, at a recent event at CSIS, talked about the fact that, look, we all use the same software and businesses can piggyback on the NIST standard and the process that the government has put in place and require the same secure software. And the second or a second example we saw in the 2021 executive order was about developing rating a rating system for IoT devices, Internet of Things devices, um, to help consumers assess the level of security for the particular IoT devices and products they use. And again, the hope is that this will create or drive a market for the production of IoT devices where security is baked in at the outset. Very good. And Stephanie, you really touch on the point that struck me when I read mostly your piece, to be very honest, that this strategy is interesting and unique because of its use of 
the market forces to drive some of these investments in cybersecurity. So the way that you frame it is really apt that the government is using power over the purse to incentivize companies to build secure softwares. And another piece that also struck me actually was Kemma Walden, who is the acting national cyber director, also recently spoke at CSIS. And she said that technology and humanity are intertwined, more intertwined than than they've ever been before. Hence why the strategy sets out bold visions like creating an equitable economy or transitioning to clean energy and strengthening our democracy and our workforce. So Eugenia, you've read this strategy from cover to cover. Can you give us a sense of what you were left feeling? And I also think you bring a very interesting international perspective through your expertise. Do you have a sense of what the international community is thinking about this strategy as well? So what I really appreciate is the way that the acting national cyber director, Kimba Walden, phrased it during that event, right? So she was talking about how the strategy, even though it is about cybersecurity and it's nested under the national security strategy, it's, it's not just about security. And you really get a sense to that, of that when you read throughout it. Like there's a lot of discussion about values. There's a lot of discussion about how to reach that place where we as users are really going to trust the networks and the systems that we use in a way that allows us to think about other goals, right? I believe that the example that she used was having like a secure and resilient electrical grid that could distribute renewable energy with precision, And that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. Uh, How do technology and humanity are intertwined? It's not just that the values of, I think the strategy says, the architects and the users of the digital ecosystem are informing the way that we experience it. It's, It's also about what does it mean and what does it enable us to do and to have if our systems are safer. Now, I I don't want to get too ahead of myself, and I know that we're going to probably just go through all the different pillars for the strategy later, but I did want to flag that an interesting question related to this is that the strategy does start to point us in that direction of how do we get there. I think it really does a good job at articulating what are you know, the the past, the present, and the future of infrastructure and how we should be thinking about it comprehensively. So I, I think it's in pillar four, which is about investing in a resilient future. And yet the first uh, strategic objective is that we need to secure the technical foundation of the internet, right? There is a recognition that there are some inherently vulnerable systems that a lot of things are relying on, the foundation is vulnerable. And, you know, that, that we need to change that if we ever want to make the internet safer and start thinking about like those full things like post-quantum future, clean energy, right? I, I ultimately think that this is a strong recognition that anything else, you know, if you're not tackling those problems, those fundamental underlying problems, then any other solution is it's kind of going to be a bit of a palliative. So Eugenia, you set us up very nicely. We are indeed going to delve into the pillars. They are a mouthful, so bear with me. There are five pillars. The first is defending critical infrastructure. 
The second is disrupting and dismantling threat actors. The third is shaping market forces to drive security and resilience. The fourth is investing in a resilient future. And the fifth is forging international partnerships to pursue shared goals. So let's take each of these in turn. And I'll start with the second pillar first, which is disrupting and dismantling threat actors. As you two note in your piece, ransomware is being elevated as a national security issue rather than being sidelined as a garden variety cybercrime. Why is the administration focusing in on ransomware? Stephanie, let's let's start with you. So Seraphin, as you know, the second pillar is about disrupting and dismantling threat actors, and ransomware is probably the most high-profile threat that falls under this pillar. As we have seen, ransomware threatens critical infrastructure. A good example of this is the colonial pipeline attack that happened in May of 2021, It provides, Colonial Pipeline provides 45% of the East Coast's fuel, and it had to shut down its operations for several days when a ransomware group known as DarkSide was able to launch a ransomware attack against Colonial Pipeline. So what we see is that critical infrastructure is vulnerable to ransomware. And I think it's fair to say that the Biden administration elevated ransomware to a national security issue even before it released the national cybersecurity strategy. The strategy talks about bringing all instruments of national power to bear against ransomware and other threat actors. And again, even before the release of the strategy, the Biden administration was engaging in some cutting edge ransomware disruption efforts. So Stephanie, that's really interesting. And again, hearkening back to this using market forces, using power over the purse, we see that here. We see an interesting effort to make ransomware activities unprofitable for cyber criminals and state actors effectively to drive them out of the ransomware business altogether. So how do cyber criminals or state actors first gain profit in the ransomware enterprise and How does the Biden administration then envision choking these actors of their profits? So generally speaking, a ransomware actor or group will infect your system with malware, potentially exfiltrate sensitive data, and then encrypt your data such that you can no longer gain access to it without a decryption key. And they they may threaten to leak your sensitive data over the internet and charge you a ransom both to decrypt your data and not to leak the sensitive parts of it all over the internet. There are other models where ransomware is offered as a service and and those leasing out their malware, so to speak, receive a cut of the ransom. I would first note that the strategy recommends that victims not pay ransom because the strategy says that the most effective way to undermine the motivation of these criminal groups is to reduce the potential for profit. Nevertheless, the strategy notes that all victims of ransomware, whether or not they pay ransom, should report attacks to law enforcement and other relevant government agencies. So we have seen over the course of the Biden administration a number of efforts to choke off the profits from ransomware groups. 
Some of these involve major disruption efforts. One that we saw recently, uh, the Department of Justice did a press conference about it, was a disruption of the Hive ransomware group, where the United States government was able to infiltrate Hive servers and over the course of several months, it appears, to extract encryption keys and provide them to victims to decrypt their data saving the victims from having to pay ransom. Um, I think I read that the government estimated it saved victims some $130 million in ransom. In the colonial pipeline attack that I, I referenced earlier, the United States government, through their digital extortion task force, was also able to recover some of the $4.4 million in ransom that Colonial Pipeline paid in Bitcoin, apparently once the government was able to identify the right wallet, it was able to seize funds from the wallet. Apparently it, it had the keys to do so. Now, the new national cybersecurity strategy also talks about targeting the illicit crypto exchanges, essentially targeting the financial infrastructure that ransomware groups rely upon to make profit. And we've also seen instances of ransomware actors being indicted. Um, That doesn't mean that we'll always or ever see them tried in a U.S. court of law, but indicting them does limit their ability to travel anywhere that they could be extradited to the U.S. So perhaps that is a bit of a deterrent as well. Interesting. And Stephanie, how does the Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act of 2022 fit into all of this? So when that act is fully implemented, essentially what's going to happen is that a number of covered entities, um, this will be some group of entities under what we define as critical infrastructure, will have to report major incidents, which again is to be further defined in this rulemaking process, to include ransomware attacks and payments. And this will give the government a better understanding of ransomware threat actors. It will potentially allow the government to stop the activity before it affects other businesses. As we've seen with other disruption efforts, it may also aid in the recovery of ransom either that has been paid or has yet to be paid. The strategy also notes the importance of international cooperation to address ransomware threats. Eugenia, what does that cooperation look like? So in many of the disruption efforts that Stephanie was talking about, international partners play a crucial role, right? Given the global nature of the ransomware threat, it is more than usual that you know, different law enforcement actors are going to be cooperating. There's there's information sharing, there's action like joint action for disruption. But one of the more relevant and I think noteworthy initiatives that the administration has been focusing on when it comes to ransomware and international partnerships is the counter ransomware initiative. This is a group of, I think now has a little over 30 countries, and they've been meeting since 2021. And this started as kind of a commitment to a multi-pronged approach to tackling ransomware. 
So let me just give you a, a quick account of how it's structured. Basically, they establish five working groups, each is led by a different country that are going to look into how to increase resilience, how to disrupt malicious actors, how to tackle the financial mechanisms that are abused to launder payments, um, how to promote public-private partnerships, and also how to leverage diplomacy. Now, after that kind of initial commitment, they met again last year. There is now a more structured program of action, and we can see kind of some advances. We see increased participation. The private sector, I, I think around 13 companies were invited to participate and kind of provide their perspective in that meeting, kind of bringing that additional point of view. And uh, last January, the task force that is being led by Australia was launched, and that kind of hopes to improve information sharing so that they can inform coordinated disruption efforts. So overall, like we see in the strategy that the counter-ransomware initiative is being called out, it is being highlighted, it definitely remains one of the uh, elements in the U.S. government's approach to tackling ransomware. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com 
dot com slash lawfare twenty and enter code lawfare twenty at checkout. That's joindeleteme dot com slash lawfare twenty code lawfare twenty. Let's zoom out here. Let's now look at critical infrastructures broadly. So Stephanie, you mentioned that ransomware and the way that this pillar is being talked about or has been crafted by the Biden administration is done so in part to protect our critical infrastructures. And the very first pillar is about defending critical infrastructures. And there's a vision that the Biden administration sets out to work with Congress to implement regulations and to work with the private sector to increase cooperation and collaboration. So Eugenia, what's the administration trying to achieve under this pillar? Right. So as you just said, this is the first pillar in the strategy. And I think the administration really comes out swinging with it. You know, the first thing you read is regulation. That is that is interesting. That is a change. There's been already a lot of coverage about what that means, about what we can expect. And I know that you asked about what does it mean that they're going to work with Congress? But, you know, let me just take a step back first and maybe provide a bit of an overview about why this is a shift and an important change. Until now, a lot of the approaches to cybersecurity and critical infrastructure uh, was kind of voluntary. And the strategy recognizes that in some cases that has led to improvements, but I'm just reading you know, here, it is the lack of mandatory requirements that has resulted in inadequate and inconsistent outcomes. So the strategy sees regulation as a way to level the playing field. Basically, the idea is that if you don't have a sector-specific regulation, you might kind of be encouraged to underinvest in that just to beat your competitors. And so regulation would come to, uh, to fill that and to encourage all vendors to do better. I really like the way that this was presented in a recent piece that, that we are running at Lawfare by Dr. Lin on these shifts in the strategy. Um, he talks about, about this topic and he highlights that the idea behind that is that the strength of cybersecurity cannot be left to individual actors um, who are going to be acting based on their business needs. And when you are talking about critical infrastructure and you consider it just how essential it is, and, and you do need to keep it running, it is the role of the government to, to encourage a robust cybersecurity post posture that is going to raise the floor for cybersecurity overall. Now, <laughs> I'm finally getting to your question, which is about the administration working with Congress. And this comes down to there are many of these sectors where the administration already has existing authorities to set minimum cybersecurity requirements. But there are a few in which those authorities are lacking. During her speech um, or her comments during that CSIS event that we were talking about, and Neuberger mentioned a couple of these, I think she highlighted 
that education and critical manufacturing, for example, are sectors where the government just doesn't have the authorities to set those, those requirements. And so it's there where hopefully you will see some, some joint actions and bipartisan support and uh, working together to ensure that the administration has those right authorities to, to set those minimums, at least those minimum cybersecurity requirements for protecting critical infrastructure. Right. And that segues nicely to our third pillar. It harkens back to, again, this idea of using market forces for the government to achieve its desired strategy outcome in the cybersecurity space. And I almost wonder if the reason that there is this, you know, power over the purse using market forces aspect to the policy is because perhaps Congress may take too long to catch up. So, Here we have market forces being used to shift liability to entities that fail to take responsible precautions to secure their software. And when I read this pillar, my antennas went up because you have this very bold assertion of liability, but very little framework on process and implementation. Stephanie, what should we expect from this pillar in the next decade? So Seraphine, you correctly note that the third pillar focuses on how we must shape market forces to place responsibility on those within our digital ecosystem that are best positioned to reduce risk. So so this pillar is very reflective of the two shifts that we've been talking about. And perhaps the most controversial aspect of this pillar, and maybe even the the entire new cybersecurity strategy, is the third objective of Pillar 3, which, as you said, is seeking to shift liability for insecure software products and services. And as Lawfare contributor Paul Rosenzweig has previously noted, liability was the third rail of cybersecurity. Touch it and you die. Well, third rail no more. Uh, This new strategy says that it seeks to shift liability, quote, onto those entities that fail to take reasonable precautions to secure their software while recognizing that even the most advanced software security programs cannot prevent all vulnerabilities. And I think what this particular objective reflects is the administration's belief that without the ability to impose legal consequences for failing to take reasonable steps to secure software products and services, the cascading harmful effects of insecure software and services may not adequately be abated over the long term. Now, you were right to acknowledge that The administration is going to have to work with Congress and, frankly, industry to get this done. And and this is not something that will happen overnight. And Newberger acknowledged at the CSIS event or CSIS event last week that they are looking, you know, over the course of of a decade. And, And this is something that there has to be consultation this is not something that that they've come out with here and now to get this right because there are going to be objections there there is going to be pushback from 
from industry um, to think through how a safe harbor provision will work. It's going to take time. But to put all that in context, Kemble Walden noted at the CSIS event that we currently live in the context of first to market, not secure to market. So this particular objective, along with a number of the other objectives in this particular pillar, is trying to achieve a competitive advantage for those who are building secure to design. We want to, they want to create an innovative space to market secure software. When both Kemble Walden and, and Newberger were discussing regulation, they were talking on the one hand about harmonizing regulation so companies don't have to comply with burdensome duplicative regulations. But ultimately, this objective, along with others in this pillar, is looking to level the playing field such that there is an advantage to baking in security at the outset. Okay, Stephanie, so competitive advantage. Flush that out for us a little bit. What are the competitive advantages? You know, is it is it profits related? Is it some some other advantage, like a marketplace advantage? What are you what is the strategy suggesting? Well, the hope is that there is a con- a competitive advantage that leads to profit by building software securely at the outset by baking in the security. Again, this is broadly thinking about who is in the best position, roles and responsibilities to secure software um, and products at the outset. And so, so I, I, I think your question goes to that kind of objective. The strategy is also mindful of future generations and their role in securing cyberspace. That gets to our fourth pillar. So, Eugenia, can you tell us what investing in infrastructure and human capital looks like? Sure. We are jumping here to pillar number four again. So the question of workforce is part of the way in which the administration thinks about investing in our resilient future. So the Office of the National Cyber Director has already announced that they are working on a national cyber workforce and education strategy. So this section in the National Cyber Security Strategy kind of provides an overview of what they're hoping to accomplish through this cyber workforce and education strategy. This has been a a question in people's minds for a long time. Um, I believe that the workforce cap is around 700,000 positions, according to some estimates, or at least that's the number that the White House has used in some of their, in some of their statements. So some of the efforts that we have seen are around scholarships, are around education, training assistant programs, kind of a broad approach to how do you make cybersecurity education more accessible just to get more people involved. But it's not just about that. Something that I really, really want to highlight about the way that the strategy is talking about it and the way that the administration has talked about it, it's that it really bakes the element and the need for diversity in The strategy explicitly calls out the lack of diversity in the cyber workforce and really 
sets out as a priority for them to address the systemic inequities that underlie it. So I, I would really say I'm looking forward to seeing when the strategy comes out, what are the details and how they're hoping to get this implemented, especially within the time frame of, you know, within the decade. So you're, you're jumping the gun here, Eugenia, because I have a question about implementation. But before I get there, I don't want to leave you quite yet. I have another question for you, which is the fifth pillar, which is about international partnerships. And I'm wondering if you could share with us what these partnerships may look like in the next 10 years. So that's a really, really broad question, Sarafin. Um, so the, the fifth pillar covers international partnerships. It discusses some of the ways in which the administration has been working on this. And I, I really think that you can get a sense for it, like, honestly, just how many models uh, for what that could look like uh, there are. You can talk about the Declaration for the Future of the Internet, which the strategy highlights. And that is kind of more of a political statement in which governments have expressed their support for a common vision of what the Internet should look like. Um, you have coalitions and partnerships that can be more tailored, can have more narrow objectives. We can talk about the work in the UN with the open-ended working group and the group of governmental experts. Uh, you can talk about voluntary framework for responsible state behavior. There's regional groups. Uh, the strategy calls out like the work with the Quad, the work with the EU's uh, TTC, with AUKUS, or, you know, you could also talk about models of international assistance uh, in responding to cybersecurity incidents. Those are usually more uh, bilateral. They're a bit less formal. So, so there really are a bunch of models for how the United States uh, is participating internationally. But at the core of it, and something that I believe the strategy really drives home, is the point that all of this activity is guided by values, right? We were talking about values before, and I think this really comes to play here. Core to, to this pillar is the focus on advancing a vision for an open, free, global, interoperable, reliable, secure digital ecosystem. And they do call out what they say that the dark vision for the internet that they say the PRC and other autocratic governments uh, have. So it's really about advancing those US values in kind of facing that threat of what the digital ecosystem could look like and the different ways in which they hope to do it. One thing that I want to bring to surface, and I don't know if this was intentional, Eugenia, but you didn't talk about the piece of global supply chain, that objective that's baked into this pillar. So the existing policy in the United States today broadly is that it seeks to develop supply chains of critical infrastructure at home within its own shores, the, you know, it being the United States. And that, to me, doesn't fit neatly into this final pillar of 
preserving our international partnerships. So where is the international partnership hook as it relates to global supply chain? Because I don't think I see it. I do think, you know, it is in the international pillar, but it's hard to not think about the question of supply chain from a domestic perspective when you're thinking about the U.S. and all the work that has been done. And, you know, when you read the strategy, it's there, it's calling out many of the domestic initiatives. It does read a bit different than the other sections. Again, I I personally think that it's because it's informed by so much of the domestic question. But, But the strategy does kind of outline how this is an international question, or at least how they're seeing the international part. They cloud how they're going to work through regional partnerships to implement best practices in cross-border supply chain risk management and kind of work to a shift in supply chains that flow through partner countries and trusted vendors. And, and I'm just kind of reading verbatim here. It's not like I remember all of this. So I think what follows is kind of interesting, right? Because it talks about prioritizing opportunities to prove that these technologies will function as expected. I don't really know what the administration means by that, uh, but that's what it says. And it's expected that that proving this, it will attract countries to support the shared vision of what the U.S. wants uh, the internet to look like. Now, the, the details of this, you know, are maybe a bit vague. And I think, again, I, I would really look forward to just just learning more on the implementation part. So, so yeah, let's stay there because I know we're itching for the implementation part. You know, many experts have already spoken about there's always this question of implementation and in any strategy, but particularly national security strategy, strategy, cybersecurity strategy, it's not always clear what implementation will look like. So let me shift over to Stephanie really quickly. Give us a sense, Stephanie, what should we expect implementation-wise in the next decade? Well, let me start with a quote directly from the strategy. It says, the Office of the National Cyber Director, or ONCD, We'll work with interagency partners to develop and publish an implementation plan to set out federal lines of effort necessary to implement this strategy. Certainly, large aspects of implementation happen at the agency level. Again, there is a a forthcoming plan, I think, that will detail these lines of efforts, and so we will know more then. But as we've talked about, Some aspects of this strategy, which depend on Congress to give the government either new regulatory authorities or or perhaps to design new liability standards, if those Congress is required for, for those kinds of activities, I don't believe that will happen overnight. It is going to be an iterative process. Legislation is always give and take. And so insofar as the strategy is sort of looking till the end of the decade to achieve all of its objectives, um, I, I think that we are, we are wise to expect 
that time frame and to be patient. Hey, Eugenia, what about you? Tell us about implementation. Yes, in, implementation is the the big question. My sense is that the strategy as is and read in the context of all of the work that the administration and past administrations have been doing on this, this is all shaping from from my perspective a pretty good vision of what you know cybersecurity should look like right are the endpoint is ambitious and in in my opinion positive if if everything comes to fruition there's going to be some skepticism around this just because of the nature of how ambitious it is and like stephanie just articulated there's a lot of work with a lot of different stakeholders that needs to happen I do think, and I do want to call out from from my perspective, I still think that there's a lot of value in having these kind of hard choices being made in the document. This is how I see it, drawing kind of a line in the sand that is going to be harder to walk back, right? It's, it's shifting the conversation and that in and of itself is of enormous value even if implementation and and everyone agrees, right? No one is saying implementation is going to be easy. Definitely not the administration. I I still think that just having it in the strategy is is a big win. And undergirding this strategy is also a timeline of 10 years, which perhaps the reason we say that it's so ambitious is maybe because 10 years is not enough time or without even predicting too far into the future, it's not clear that Biden will be in office in 2024. We might have a Republican president and a Congress that's unwilling to focus on these issues or to align itself with this strategy in particular. So how has the administration accounted for this possibility? Or maybe a reframing of that question is, has it accounted for this possibility in the strategy? So as I read at least the beginning part of the strategy, I, I don't even know if it's a decade or the or the end of the decade, like of this decade. I, I could I could be misinterpreting it. And look, both Ann Newberger and Kemba Walden acknowledged that the easy part was writing the strategy. The hard part is implementing it. So I don't think anybody is backing away from the challenges that implementation presents. But to Eohenia's point, you have to articulate a vision. And, you know, if there is another administration during the time where implementation is ongoing, I do think it is difficult then to back away from what has been articulated in this new national cybersecurity strategy. We know where we need to get. We know what shifts need to occur. And I think it's fair to say that the new national cybersecurity strategy has put Congress on notice of where it should act. And, and that is a useful thing. Stephanie Pell and Eugenia Lostry, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter 
at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. This podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and our audio engineer this episode was Isabel Kirby McGowan of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.